Amen. John 14. Let's read this section. Uh, we'll <clears throat> confine uh, the majority of our time to this passage. Now, the context of John 14 is Jesus is having a very intimate conversation with his disciples. And you can tell that it's very intimate because in this entire section of Scripture, right after he washes the disciples' feet, the clue is, is that the disciples are asking Jesus questions. And it's one of the most back-and-forth moments that you ever see between Jesus and his disciples. It's not just Jesus and one disciple, but it's multiple disciples back and forth. And so this is, you can tell this is a very intimate setting where they feel comfortable to be able to ask him questions. He's answering their questions and so on and so forth. And so Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the, world, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, everybody in here has some past experience with the Holy Spirit. When I say Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, something comes to your mind. You have some, uh, you know, maybe you don't have a lot of church background. Maybe you just watch weird stuff on TV. You've, you've seen it on television. Or maybe you uh, grew up in a, a church that was very standoffish to the Holy Spirit and had a tendency to... Um, collect and harbor doctrine that you were never taught to live or experience. Or maybe you have been exposed to a, a church growing up where you would cling to experience, but it was void of doctrine. And the bottom line is that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, a lot of churches are either cemeteries or insane asylums. And that's just the way it goes. And what, what we want to do is we want to have a biblical understanding and approach of the Holy Spirit. And we, what we want to do is we want to embrace the Holy Spirit's purpose in our lives. And so in order to do that, in order for us to live in the fullness of all that God called us to, we have to begin tonight by just unraveling some things to make sure that we're all on the right page. Not the page that we think we ought to be on, but the page that the Bible says that we ought to be on. So the first question we'll address is, well, who is he? Because we can't, we can't even begin to embrace his purpose if we don't know who he is. So a good basic definition is the Holy Spirit is the personal divine resident of the Christian's heart. The personal divine resident of the Christian's heart. The defining characteristic of a born-again person. The singular defining characteristic of salvation is the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches. And so, 
Look at verse 17. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot see because it neither sees, underline him, nor knows, underline him. You know, underline him, for he, underline, dwells with you and will be with you. Then look down in verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, underline, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It's very important that we have the right personal pronouns when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit's not a force. The Holy Spirit is not some energy. And I know you know that, but it, it's very easy to speak of the Holy Spirit in a way that sounds as if uh, we're not talking about a person. And think about what the Bible teaches us. We just finished studying Ephesians 4.20 where the Bible says the Holy Spirit can be grieved. He can be grieved. In Hebrews 10, the Bible says that the Spirit takes offense. So he can be grieved, he takes offense. In Romans 15, the Bible says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. The Spirit can be grieved, offended, and loves. So clearly the Spirit is a person. A force can't love. A force can't be offended. A force can't be grieved. So he is a person, but he's not only a person. He is God. And we do need to clarify exactly what I mean by this just to make sure that we are on the right path. Notice in verse 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another. You should circle the word another. That's a clue. Another helper to be with you forever. So he doesn't say, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, I'm going to send one. He refers to the Holy Spirit. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as another. Now think about who's saying another. The person who's saying another is the same person who said, before Abraham was, I am. The same person who forgave sin. The same person who came to fulfill the law. The same person who in every way, shape, and form uh, professed to be God. He's saying another helper. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus claims to be equal with God, and now he's sending someone like himself. Now, we've got to think about what is happening right here. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, that's a mouthful, but we got to be clear on what the Bible's saying here. Jesus is not saying, well, I'm really not going away. See, some people think that what he's saying is, I'm leaving physically, but I'm really not going away. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. And that's important. It may sound like a little, you know, just a slight linguistic difference, but it is, it's a big theological difference. He's not saying I'm really not going away. He's not saying I'm coming to you in the form of the Holy Spirit. That is not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, I'm going away, and therefore he is coming. That's not what Jesus is saying. Now, if you read closely 18, 19, and 20, you'll see exactly what I'm about to tell you. Jesus is saying, 
I'm going away and the Holy Spirit is coming, therefore I'm coming. That's what he's saying. Now, if the next few moments confuse you, worry not. Uh, Later at the end of this year or early next year, we're going to do a Wednesday night series on the Trinity. And we'll dive into all this and make sure that we're straight. But look, Jesus is so one with the Holy Spirit that when the Spirit comes, He comes. But He's not identical to the Holy Spirit. So that at the same time, it's true, Jesus goes away and He's with the Father. So He goes away and He's with the Father at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. But He's also here because the Spirit's here. Let me help you, okay? There's not three gods. They're too unified to be three gods. But they're not one God in three forms because they're too distinct to be that. And I hear people talk all the time and, and you, mostly unintentionally, I'm sure, but when you're talking about the Trinity or when you're talking about the Holy Spirit or the Father, the Son, you have to be careful that you're not speaking in a way that sounds as if there's one God that comes in three forms. That is heresy. It's called modalism. And it's rampant in the church today. And it's heretical. That is not at all what the Trinity is. It is not one God, three forms. No. One God, three persons. They're each individual distinct persons. Okay? Okay. So that's who he is. Now let's talk for a minute about, well, what does he do? What does he do? In verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now, the first thing I want you to consider about the Holy Spirit is that he's the author of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. 2 Peter 1 says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He is the author. Did I put Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 in your handout? Okay, good. Let's read that. I want to show you something. This is just an example for you so you can see something. In Ephesians 5, you should know this passage. Be filled with the Spirit. So don't be drunk with wine for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Then comes a list of what being filled with the Spirit looks like. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then comes what that looks like. Teaching and admonishing uh, one another in wisdom, singing. It's the same thing. Now, why am I showing you this? Because let the word of Christ dwell in you richly is be filled with the word. The Bible sees no difference between be filled with the spirit and be filled with the word. You see that? Those are interchangeable. They're synonymous. That's what I want you to see. I want you to see that the Spirit and the Word are one. They're not the same, but they're, they're unified in one. They're, they're, they're inseparable. You cannot divide. That's why Spirit and truth always go together. Spirit and truth, Spirit and truth. 
they fit together. When the Spirit is not connected to the truth, then what, what do you have? You just have words. That's all you have. And then when you have the other way around, what do you have? You just have chaos. You see, you have to have these two things together. There, there, there's an unbreakable connection between the Word and the Spirit. So in 21, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them. See, notice, Jesus is talking about the Spirit, right? That's the whole point of this entire passage. Yet, look at, it sounds like he's addressing another topic, but he's not. In the context of the Holy Spirit, you have to understand this. Whoever has my word and keeps it, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, here's the question. Who is Jesus talking to? He's standing in the flesh in front of his disciples. They're looking straight into his eyes. And he's saying to them, manifest myself to him. In other words, reveal myself to him, show myself to him. He's talking to people who can see him. So it's, something's happening here. What do you mean show yourself to them? They already know who you are. They're watching you speak these words. See, here's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's teaching us that it's the Holy Spirit that takes the word and makes it life. That's how this happens. And that's what, that's what this passage is, is getting us to see. That's why there's, there, there's a conversation about the Holy Spirit mixed in with two separate references about having the Word and obeying the Word. Because you can't separate those things. So the Spirit conducts His teaching ministry by enabling us to understand, apply, and obey the Scriptures. He inspired men to write. So you have to ask yourself a question. Like, can a lost person interact with the Word of God, with the Bible, the way a saved person can? To which I would hope that we would all say no. But here's the real question. I want you to tell me how it's different. How is that different? See, I think we're all comfortable saying, well, no, a, a, a saved person's going to interact with the Word differently than a lost person can. But how? How is that different? Because a lost person is reading the words, using their brain, understanding the language in the same way you are, so how is that different? Can a lost person obey God? You should think about that. What does that look like? How does that work? You see, the Holy Spirit is not only the author of objective truth, but He's the author of subjective truth as well. So when I say objective truth, right over the top of that, the Bible. And when we say subjective truth, you should write over the top of that, it's the experience of the truth. You see, the Holy Spirit authors both of those things. Apart from the Holy Spirit, a human being cannot experience the truth. 
You can't experience it. You can read it. You can memorize it. You can conjugate the, the verbs. You can, you can dissect the sentences. Believe me, I tell you this, I've told you this multiple times over the years. I met lots of lost people in seminary that know tons of stuff about the Bible. But they don't experience it. The Holy Spirit is the only way we can experience the truth. So he authors it objectively and subjectively. Notice in John 6 what Jesus said. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, are they spirit? Yes. Are they life? Yes. But here's what they're not. They're not spirit without life or life without spirit. Those two things go together. So the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life authors the experience of the Word of God. Now that doesn't mean that everybody... See, we don't... Look... In the same way, we don't all experience things the same in life. Some of you are, are the kind of people who can quietly, calmly, thoroughly enjoy something. I don't understand you. You're totally weird. That makes no sense to me. But you can do that. I, on the other hand, am not that person. So if I'm into something, I'm like super jazzed up, super amped up, super passionate, getting loud. That's just how it is. And so some of you are like me, some of you are on the other end, and then you're, you're, some of you are all in the middle. Okay, and so the same is true with the way we experience the Word. We don't all experience the Word the same way, but here's the thing. If we're saved, we experience the Word. If we're not saved, we're not going to experience the Word. And regardless of how you experience the Word, It's different than not experiencing it. You know, we, we a lot of times quote verses that we don't exactly understand. Like sometimes we, we like to say that, you know, well, my spirit bears witness with your spirit. Well, there's a great example of what that's talking about. See, when somebody talks about the Bible in a, in a non experiential way even if you're even if you're a very low-key calm person my spirit can tell that you don't experience the word because they're just words I can tell you can tell when you're talking to people by the way they're talking about what they're talking about you can you should know exactly what I'm talking about now if everything I just said sounds completely foreign to you well, that could be a big problem. So Jesus says he's sending another helper. Now, maybe you grew up with a different translation that didn't say helper. Maybe it said advocate. This is a very very difficult Greek word to translate into English because, again, we're operating in black and white. We just don't, the English language is not comprehensive enough to even begin to, we just don't have, we don't have one word that can, that can substitute for this word. So helper's a good word, advocate's a good word, counselor's a 
good word. Comforters, kind of a good word. But what, is, what does he mean? What exactly is he saying when he says, I'm going to send you another helper? Well, consider just some of the things that the Holy Spirit does. He defends us against accusation. So he's an advocate. He's a helper in the sense that he defends us against accusation. So one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is defend us against our enemies on earth and and more importantly, the enemies in our heart. The Holy Spirit is constantly at work defending us against our enemies in the world and inside of us. Look at Romans 8 in verse 15. I, I, I wanted to use passages that you're familiar with. So let's see this. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What is that passage? What is Paul saying right there? Why is Paul saying to the church at Rome, to Christians, you didn't receive a spirit of fear? Here's what Paul's saying. Our hearts are filled with fears The Spirit calms our fears by reminding us that we're loved. That's what he's saying. Do you know why the Bible says you didn't receive a spirit of fear? Because your flesh will constantly, constantly conjure up things to be afraid of. Constantly. And what the Spirit does is combat those how? By crying, Abba, Father. What does that mean? By by reminding you that your daddy in heaven loves you. You see? That's how he settles our, our fears. And then Paul goes on, the very next verse in Romans 8, verse 16, he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Why is the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God? What is the re- well, because our hearts, again, are filled with doubts. Do you know why you need to be reminded that you're a child of God? Because you're constantly, constantly going to be attacked with the internal voice of rejection and condemnation. See, what is the what what does the what does the understanding or the reminder of in a moment when, when the, the still small voice inside of you says, you're a child of God, what value is that? The value in that comes in the moment of doubting because we're, the flesh is ultra-proficient at self-condemnation. See, the flesh re- reacts to a world in which you've been rejected, you've been hurt, you've been wounded, you've been let down, you've been disappointed. And so you need constantly to be reminded that you're a child of God and that can never change. You're a child of God that can never change. Your daddy in heaven loves you. So he's operating, the Spirit of God is operating against our fears and against our doubts. And it's so important for us to understand this because because you need to understand your heart is just like my heart. It rejects the gospel. The natural heart rejects the gospel. Why? Because the flesh hates grace. And why does the flesh hate grace? Because the flesh wants to earn. And so the gospel... It goes against the flesh, which is why they're always contrary to one another, Galatians chapter 5. And the Holy Spirit indwells us and continually pounds the gospel into us. But But the Bible teaches us in very specific and wonderful, loving ways. And so, like, for example... You might have one person 
You might have one saved person who says, you know, Pastor Tony, I just struggle all the time with, with doubt and with fear. And, and then you have another saved person who says, you know, doubt and fear is just doesn't seem to be, it's just not a big deal in my life. Both people saved, both people indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now you have, you have two things going on here. Number one, you have two people who have two different histories. So what could be going on is that the person who's doubting and, and full of fear is somebody who is, is still in the process of overcoming all sorts of brokenness from their past, right? And the person who's not doubting and not struggling with fear didn't suffer those things in their past, and so therefore they have less of, a, of, a, of an issue. But that's only part of the story. The other part of the story is, but both have the, the Holy Spirit, and, so they, and they both have the same Holy Spirit, and they both have the same amount of the Holy Spirit. But what may be happening is that it may not be what I said at first at all. It may be that the person who's not struggling with doubt or fear is the one who grew up in, the, in, in a way more broken and dysfunctional situation. But they're walking and experiencing the fullness of the Spirit, which is why they're not struggling with doubt and fear. So here's the thing. I'm not telling you tonight, listen, if you're struggling with doubt and fear, you know, then here's your, then this is wrong with you. I'm just simply telling you all of this for this reason. If you're struggling with doubt and fear, don't fixate on what happened to you or why or you don't need to launch an internal investigation to get to the bottom. You need to understand the solution to that is experiencing the Holy Spirit's power in your life. And so in a couple of weeks when we spend an entire Wednesday night talking about what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then you should pay really close attention because that would be the answer to how do you deal with that? The Holy Spirit dissipates fear, dissipates doubt. And every single one of us has a fleshly heart that makes both fear and doubt. Constantly. So it's not a question of whether or not you have it in your heart. It's a question of what is happening to it. What are you doing with it? That's what's at. That's the whole issue all right so he defends us against accusation he also defends us against temptation that's another function of the holy spirit that's another way that we experience the ministry of the holy spirit james chapter 4 do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over your spirit that he has made to dwell in us? See that? So there's this conversation about uh, friendship with the world and causing division against God and this battle back and forth. And then he says, but do you suppose it's of no purpose that the Bible says he yearns jealously. God yearns over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. The spirit is jealous in us. The spirit in us fights against. So here's what this verse is teaching us. When you develop a friendship with the world, what does the Spirit of God do inside of you? Again, these, are, these should all be little markers in your head to understand things. Oh, that's why that. So if you, again, you don't have to ask a person. If, you, if you're around a person, if you relate to a person, if you can see a person, you don't have to ask them, are you a Christian? The simple fact that you're asking somebody that they're a Christian is a huge red flag that there's a big problem. Because if you're saved, you should be able to see salvation in someone. And if you're asking them, then there's a problem. 
It doesn't mean they're lost, but it means there's a problem. Because when you make friends with the world, the Spirit doesn't just sit idly by. Doesn't do that. You see, the, the God, God, the Trinitarian God whom we serve, will not overwhelm our free will in salvation. He does not barge in and force himself upon us. But once you're saved, it's a whole new ballgame. Because now the Spirit of God has set up, tabernacled inside of you. You now are his temple, the Bible says. And let me tell you, do you think that the Spirit of God is just going to be fine with you defiling the temple? Negative. That's not how that works. Now, if you wanted to exercise your free will, you should have thought of that before salvation. He's not going to sit by idly. When we give our heart to lesser things, the Holy Spirit intervenes. He intervenes. Listen, when you, when, you, when you allow your affections to begin to be lured by money or acceptance or pleasure or power or whatever it is, in the place of God, the Holy Spirit is not going to sit by idly. Now, many of you already know this because you have experienced this firsthand just as I have when I first became a Christian. There was a, a, a season early in my salvation, like in the first couple of months that I was a Christian, I lost all my friends, my whole world turned upside down. I mean, every, I mean it, was, it, was, it was rough. And so I thought maybe I could put one foot back in the world and keep one foot over here in the church and it would work. And I distinctly remember trying to convince myself that this whole process was about evangelizing my friends. But here's what happened. And many of you, the same thing happened. When I, I went back and tried to do the same thing with my friends that I had been doing for years, and I couldn't. I tried. It was miserable. It was terrible. The same things, the same places, with the same people. Everything was the same except for one thing, me. The Spirit of God won't allow you to do that. And so you think that you have free will in the sense that you can make, the, you can make a conscious decision in your free will to sin. Right today, you can make that decision. Tonight. But here's what you can't do. You can't stop the Holy Spirit inside of you from making you miserable. You can't do that. See, the, the Holy Spirit is like He's like, a, he's like a loving friend to an addict. If you genuinely love someone, you're not going to sit by idly and allow them to destroy themselves, now are you? No. If you genuinely love them, you're going to intervene. And so what does that mean? Well, here's what that means. That means that the purpose of God... For example, look at Philippians 1.6. For he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, do you see any room in Philippians 1.6 for your free will? Where are you mentioned in there? You're not in there. Once he's in there, that verse is true. Now, you can fight against the process, Jonah, if that's what you choose to do. But the Holy Spirit's not going to sit back idly and allow that to happen. It's, there's going to be pain and suffering. 
And so think about this. For someone to be utterly for you, they must be willing at times to be against you. Right? See, if I'm always for you, I'm really not for you. Because here's what I know about you. You're just like me. You don't deserve to always be for, because a lot of times you're wrong, just like me. So people who genuinely love us sometimes are going to hurt us. That's part of love. Love that doesn't hurt is not real love. It's not real love. That's the Hallmark Channel love. That's not real love. See? See, I just encourage a lot of you. A lot of you just figured out, I really do love Pastor Tony because sometimes I want to punch him. See? (laughs) See? Now you're getting this thing. That's how this works. Someone who tells you what you always want to hear doesn't love you. They don't love you. So in order to be for someone, sometimes you have to be against them. So guess what? The Holy Spirit is genuinely for you. So that means sometimes he's going to kick you in the tail. And he's going to keep kicking. And you keep fighting and he's going to keep, and he's going to keep on. And here's, you know what Philippians 1.6 means? You're going to lose. That's what it means. You're going to lose. Fight all you want. You will lose. He will win. Because that's what he does. See, he has a love that's so great and so perfect that always prevails, doesn't it? All right, so let's recap where we are so we can kind of put the final piece on this. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to give you truth. You can't separate spirit and truth. Those two things go together. That's the job of the Holy Spirit to give you truth. He's going to guide you into truth. He's going to make the truth manifest. He's going to make the truth experiential. He's going to give us eyesight. I mean, again, in, in your, your salvation experience, I don't know what it's like to get saved as a child because I wasn't saved as a child. I don't know what it's like to grow up in a home where... You were brought into church and taught about Jesus because that wasn't me. I know what it's like to do that to my kids, but it, it wasn't me. I only know what it's like to get saved at 25. But here's what I know. I know that one of the very first things that happened to me was I was reading the Bible, which led me to, to that's the, one of the main things God used to save me. But when I got saved, my reading of the Bible completely changed, completely changed. Suddenly, what was like a book became something very different. I started seeing things and understanding things and and perceiving things that prior to salvation weren't there. Now, there were moments when the Holy Spirit was working to bring me to conversion, but it was very different. And I distinctly remember telling my wife, honey, because I didn't know. And so I was just asking, I said, honey, Something happened, like now when I read the Bible, it's different. And she had to explain that to me because I did not know that. But I knew it was different. Secondly, it's the job of the Holy Spirit to get you to experience truth. That's His job. Apart from Him, you can't experience it. It won't happen. It can't happen. So the million-dollar question is, Why? 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 Why has God gone to such lengths to do things the way He's done it? Why is the Spirit of God in us to to lead us to truth and to allow us to experience truth? This is a great question. See, I think a lot of people don't think about this, and so here's what happens. You sort of just sleepwalk your way into this understanding that 
so that I'll have these spiritual experiences. What? No. God, God, is, God is not doing everything that he's doing so that we'll have experiences in the truth. He's doing everything he's doing so that we'll experience the truth for a purpose, for a reason. There's a reason. And if you don't get the reason, then the whole thing is just pointless, really. Why? What difference does it make? I mean, if maybe you're sitting here tonight and you have, you have uh, some irrational confidence in your salvation. Just be honest in your head. You won't tell anybody this, but you have this irrational confidence in your salvation, but the truth is you don't experience the Word of God. Okay? Let's don't be naive. There's... There's, a, there's someone in the room that fits that category. You have an irrational confidence in your salvation because you did something, said something, prayed something, followed something, blah, 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 blah. But the fact of the matter is you do not experience the Word of God. So if that's you, and you say to yourself, well... I'm going to heaven. So I'm good with it. Why can that not be the case? Why can we not be good with that? Why is it essential? Why is it necessary? Why should every person in the room, right now your heart should be clamoring towards, grasping out for, I want to experience the Word of God. And every one of you that is experiencing the Word of God, your heart right now is saying, but I want to experience the Word of God more. I'm never satisfied. It's never enough. It's the greatest thing in the world. And when I'm not, it's like I'm in a dry and and parched land. Why is that so important? It's all to glorify Jesus Christ. All of it. Your experience of the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit is 100% to glorify Jesus. Now, why should that matter to me and you? Why should that be such a, a big deal to us? Why? In John 15, Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. See that? So we've got the spirit of truth Jesus is going to give that's going to bear witness of himself. But then we who receive this spirit of truth, there's a, there's a, a cause. It's not maybe. It's not possibly. It's every person that receives the spirit of truth will then do something, will bear witness that they've Receive the spirit that bears witness of him. Or John 16, 14. He will glorify me, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here's what I'm saying. Here's what the Bible's telling us tonight. The Holy Spirit is given to glorify Jesus. How? In our hearts, our minds, our actions. 
that he would be experienced in our homes and in our relationships and that when we gather together as a body that he would be glorified in our service in our fellowship and in our worship in other words what the holy spirit does is it infiltrates he infiltrates every arena of our lives to glorify christ we exist as a saved person to glorify christ in our actions in our thoughts with our words the way that we do things the way that we approach things in our homes among our family with our children in our friendships and the way we conduct ourselves in relationships is to be under the discretion, under the authority, under the power of the Holy Spirit. When we come into this place, we serve, not in our own power, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We fellowship, not in our, there's no koinonia apart from the Spirit of God. You can't, there is no fellowship according to the Bible apart from the Spirit of God. It's just people grouped together. But in the Spirit of God, there's koinonia, fellowship. When we sing, when we worship, it's in the Spirit of God that we do that. Not in our own strength. All of those things are occurring because of the purpose of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So therefore, the one thing that consistently undermines the Holy Spirit's chief purpose in our life. See, if... If... If there's an area of your life where you feel convicted right now, I wonder why that is. When I went through that list and I said, in our home, and you felt conviction, or I said, in our relationships, you felt conviction, or I said, in our thoughts, and you felt conviction, because the Holy Spirit is intervening right now. And why do you feel conviction in that area? What's the problem in that area? Why would it be that what would be the single chief way to explain why Christ is not being glorified in your home or in your marriage or in your thought life or in your relationships or in your, when you're in the church. What is it that banishes the Spirit? That drains, that turns the valve wide open and the power drains out of us? One thing. It's always one thing. It's always the same one thing at the root that does it. Self-glory. Because the chief purpose of the Holy Spirit is Jesus' glory. And when there's no Jesus' glory, it's because there's self-glory. That's always the enemy. What does your heart always want to do? Glorify self. Always. Always. We want credit. We want recognition. We want to be known. We want to be seen. And think about this. Everything that the enemy does, all of the attacks of the enemy are not random. They're not random. They're very strategic thoughtful, precisely aimed torpedoes to destroy you. See, you, you think that I just rant about stuff, but I don't. What do you think is happening right now in our culture? You think social media is a game. It's not a game. It is a dangerous weapon, and it is designed to lure you into self-glory and void you of the power of the Spirit. That's what it is. You see, if you're, I'm, it's not all bad. 
right? Isn't it wonderful that we get to see when, you know, people's baby pictures and we get to see them, people that we love, experiencing things that they love and not? I mean, yeah, sure, but that's such a... But this is, this is where it comes, it roosts with us. Why do you post what you post? What's your motivation? And the better question, the more piercing question is, for the love of God, why do you care so much about who and how many respond? Self-glory. Most of the things that you post on social media are not evil. They're not bad. But this is what is killing you. If you check to see who looked, who commented, who cares, who... It's got you. It's got you. self-glory the enemy's after you and he's not just after you in any sort of way he's after you in the most devastating and dangerous ways and so you know what you do you here's here's what's healthy lisa posts pictures of our grandkids we already know they're the most beautiful children in the world do you think I give a flying rip what you think about them? I don't care. You think I'm checking to see what you think about my perfect, beautiful, amazing grandchildren? Negatory. And so even if I were to, which I'm not, but if I did post something dumb like what I'm eating for dinner, which is dumb, but even if I did do that, fine. But if I care what you think about what I'm eating for dinner, something is wrong. It's wrong. It's self-glory. And so don't get, don't get all bent out of shape about, oh, you know, look at all the things that are so wrong with our culture and our country's going down the drain. Yeah. You know, people want to, you know, determine what their gender is and do it. It's all self-glory, self-glory. But listen, don't be pointing the finger over there when you're ate up with self-glory just in a very sneaky, hidden way. And you know what it's doing? It's suffocating the spirit right out of your life. And so guess what? You know this. Those of you in the room that are just, you're just ate up with it. Here's what you know. You know what I said about Accusation in Romans 8, your heart's filled with fears and your heart's filled with doubts. And you know why? Because you're squelching the spirit out of yourself with self-glory. That's why. That's why. You better be real, real, real careful about self-glory. The sure sign of the Holy Spirit's working is that Christ is magnified, not people. Not people. It's not people. It's Christ. Philippians 3. For we are the circumcision. Now, if you read the whole context of the chapter 3 of Philippians, you'd understand that Paul just uses the term circumcision because he's talking in the context of that. But what he's saying is, we are the real people of God. Who? Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's what it looks like. What, what, 
What is confidence in the flesh? What would it look like in your life if you were putting confidence in the flesh? What would it look like in my life if, how would you know if I had confidence in the flesh? What does that mean? It's very simple. Confidence in the flesh is disobedience. And here's how you know that. Because confidence in the flesh is doing it our own way. Why aren't we doing it God's way? Because we have confidence in the flesh. So confidence in God is obedience, which is doing it God's way. So where in your life do you have confidence in the flesh, which is self-glory? That's what that is. How do church people... See, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want, I don't want to cast a, a net across the room. Because in a moment like this, it could go either way. I don't want any confidence in the flesh to manifest itself by trying to make you feel like you're lost. I don't want to make you feel like you're lost. But I also don't want to make you want to make you feel like you're saved either. Because neither one of those things is my job. That's not my lane. I can't save you. And I'm not the discerner of any person's heart. I can I can see with the eyes that God gives. But that's that's his lane. So, so how do church people miss out on the spirit-filled life? Because that's the crazy thing is that church people, people who hear truth all the time, people who are, have access but they're li- and, and who have the spirit of God within them but are riddled with doubt and fear. And then you have people who are church people who are lost and who are riddled with doubt and fear. So how do we discern that? Now this passage told you twice how that's discerned. How do church people miss out on the spirit-filled life? Unlived truth. That's uh, That's the litmus test according to the Bible. That's why Jesus said twice in the context of a discussion about the Holy Spirit, he who keeps my commandments loves me. First John 3, 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. You see that? Because you can't keep the commandments without the Spirit. Can't do it. Can't do it. You can try to pretend to be saved by trying to obey God's Word. But what's going to happen? It's not going to work. You can't do that successfully. You're going to be miserable. Your life is a, the Spirit of God won't be reflected in your relationships because you're going to be grumpy and miserable all the time. You're going to be mean spirited to people. That's why you have such a bad attitude, it's because you're trying to do it in your own strength and power. Of course, you have a bad attitude. Yes. It's unlived truth. Only professions of faith that lead to expressions of obedience are genuine. Yeah. So when you step off the path, that doesn't mean you're lost. It just means there's a problem that needs to be addressed. But see, maybe you've just been off the path. So
So the why behind the who and the what of the Holy Spirit is the glory of God through the magnification of Jesus by the powerful gospel witness of our lives. When the Spirit of God, when the Holy Spirit indwells a person, He immediately ignites an unstoppable process by which He will glorify Jesus in the life of that person. And the reason why is now evident, which is why. So that we bring glory to Christ. And why? Because what does, what does the glorification of Christ in your life do? It accomplishes the mission for which you've been created for. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. See, when you receive the Spirit, you'll be my witnesses. In power. You will, you will make disciples because your life is an expression of the glory of Jesus, so people see that, respond to that, and so the, the, the central purpose of God in the world to save man from their sins, to fill and populate heaven, is accomplished through people possessed by the Spirit. So the whole thing fits together like a perfect puzzle. Now all you have to do is look yourself in the mirror and just ask yourself some questions. Be honest. Does my life glorify Jesus? Am I a witness for Jesus? Begin to examine. Is the Spirit of God visibly active? In my thought life, in my actions, in my relationships, in my home, in, my, in the way that I serve in the kingdom, in the way that I participate in the family, in the way that I worship God. Think of all these verses that are going through your mind. The Bible even says, I'm seeking a specific kind of worshiper. Not somebody come in here and sing. Not somebody to come in here and sing what you want to sing. The Spirit of God does not care about that. What does the Bible say? I'm seeking people who will worship me how? In spirit and in truth. Those two inseparable things. Those two things. So you don't, when, you don't ever pull onto this property without first you should just Check yourself and say, Lord, rid me of any self-glory before I even walk through the door. Which means I don't get to choose who I love. I don't get to choose that. I don't get to choose how I love. I don't get to choose that. Because I am loved. Father, we thank you for tonight. Your word is amazing and wonderful. So God, for the work that you have accomplished in here, we give you praise. And now, Lord, we know that you're, you're never through because you're always in an ongoing...